Today's reading from the Word of God comes from the book of Acts, chapter 16, verses 16 through 40. Please follow along in your own Bibles, on the screen behind me, or listen as I read the scriptures. Once again, that's Acts, chapter 16, verses 16 through 40. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. At that time, children are invited to join Kids Rock through the door on your right. Hear the word of the Lord. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God. He and his whole household. When it was daylight, 
the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates. And when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, church. My name is Brandon, one of the pastors here. I'm so glad to be worshiping with you this morning. Happy Father's Day to our dads in the room. Happy Father's Day to my father-in-law, who's sitting right there, and to my dad, who might be on the live stream, or maybe later. We'll see. Um, so good to be with you. I, I'm also really thrilled um, about Juneteenth, and one of the things that I have tried to do um, is, is kind of learn about the land that we're on, who lived here before we got here, what indigenous groups lived here, and so I've been kind of trying to study that information. I'll share that in a different moment, but one of the things that's really significant about the street, Dane Street, is that it was named after an attorney from the 1800s named Nathan Dane, who uh, wrote a proclamation that kept slavery from, from coming up into this region. So we're actually, um, it's, it's a pretty significant uh, street name here, and I'm really thankful for that. So before we get going in studying the Word of God, I want to just open with a word of, of prayer and a moment to be quiet. Whatever you brought into the room this morning, whether that is a memory, a story, something that is on your heart that you want to hear a word from the Lord about, we just want to invite you to invite the Holy Spirit to speak into that place through Scripture with, with us this morning. So take a moment to be quiet, talk with God, and I'll open us in prayer in a minute. Lord God, indeed you are a good, good Father. We thank you for who you are for how you teach us to be. And we pray this morning that we would be challenged to know you, to pledge our allegiance to you, to be even more loyal to you than we've ever been. We pray that you would challenge us and change us. We thank you for your invitation to be part of a deeper story and a deeper transformation than anything else that this world can offer us. So we pray that you would te teach us this morning, that you would speak to us out of your word, and that we would fall more and more in love with you today. We do love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, do you like my sweatshirt? I don't normally preach in a sweatshirt, but I thought I would wear this sweatshirt today. Thanks for noticing it. Um, it has a, a P on it. Little, this little logo here. I don't know. Does anyone know what this logo is? Polar seltzer. No, not polar seltzer. Nice job. Peloton. Stands for a little exercise brand you might have heard of, Peloton. I haven't really talked about this a lot, but we, we got a, a Peloton. Now, if you're not familiar with Peloton, it is this exercise phenomenon that kind of took over during the pandemic. People couldn't go to the gym, and so they got these exercise bikes at home, and it comes with this little screen, and you can do live rides with like live instructors. It's pretty amazing. And I'll be honest with you, I didn't really want to get a Peloton. I mean, Peloton people kind of annoy me. You know what I mean? 
Like, they're always talking about their Peloton. They're always bringing it up in their sermons or whatever. (laughs) They're always trying to get you to buy a Peloton also so you can be Peloton friends and do live rides with them. And I did not want to become one of those Peloton people, but my husband did. And I love my husband. And so we caved and we got a Peloton, and now I am Peloton people. And I would really, really like it if you would all get a Peloton so that we can be Peloton friends and do live rides together. Does anyone else have Peloton? We don't have a lot of Peloton people in here. I guess I have to work harder. So I I really, I wore this, this sweatshirt as an excuse to tell you that I have a Peloton, but more than you knowing that I have one, I want you to think that I'm the kind of person who would have a Peloton. Like, the kind of person who has some expendable income. I put some kale in my smoothies. I I have a cactus garden, and I summer in Montreal. That's what I want you to think about me. I want my Peloton to tell you about who I am. My husband and I were talking to Pastor Ethan last month about the Peloton, because Pastor Ethan really loves it when we bring it up a lot. Um, and he was like, so what's so special about the Peloton? Like, is it a better exercise bike or something? And we were like, no, it's not necessarily better than any other exercise machine, not necessarily, but the instructors just like, they motivate you and there's thousands of people working out with you at a time. You can high five them on the screen. It's, it's like transcendent. And, and Pastor Ethan said, oh, so it's not just a bike. It's an experience. Yeah, yeah, we're paying for an experience. We're part of a community. We're part of a a movement. And for some people, it's almost spiritual to be part of a movement like Peloton. When you really think about it, Peloton kind of functions like a faith community. We tithe to it every month. (laughs) We wear little symbols on our clothes so you know that we're part part of the community. The act of clipping yourself into a bike Or if you do a different kind of exercise, the act of tying your running shoes or that first kind of punch in your heavy bag, it is a ritual. It can be grounding. Leaders strap on their microphones. They tell you motivational stories. They challenge you to keep going. And in those workout rooms or classes, you find community. Community with other faithful members, people who buy into the same creeds and ideologies and workout philosophies that you do. So what about you? Like, what community are you a part of? What communities? Where is your citizenship? What symbols do you kind of try to, like, work into conversations? What group are you a card-carrying member of? Maybe it's a workout community. Maybe it is a political party. Maybe it's a group of people who are working for change in the same way that you are. Maybe it's your alma mater. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your last name. So when you think about your groups, what group or groups do you pledge your allegiance to, your loyalty to? Well, we have been in a sermon series this spring called In Good Spirit, Transformation in the Book of Acts. And for the last couple months, we've been looking at all these ways that the Holy Spirit transforms the world, from our communities to our society to our conflicts and our relationships, even with our enemies. And this morning, we are going to look at how the Holy Spirit transforms our allegiances the things that we pledge our loyalty to. So if you brought your Bibles, I'd invite you to open them up to the book of Acts, chapter 16, to the passage that Shilpa read for us a few minutes ago. 
And we're going to do a little background first, so just kind of keep your finger on the page. And before we dive in, I want to just kind of take a minute to recap what is going on in this world in the book of Acts. What was going on in the world at this time? So if you have been part of, of church for a while, you probably remember that this part of the world at this time was controlled by the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire had a particular way of doing things that you just do not mess with. So I'll give you an example. Nearly a decade before Jesus was born, some words were inscribed on the imperial walls of the empire. It said this, The most divine Caesar we should consider equal to the beginning of all things. For when everything was falling into disorder and tending toward dissolution, he restored it once more. Whereas providence has brought us to perfection and giving to us the emperor Augustus, who being sent to us as savior has put an end to war and has set all things in order, having become God manifest. The birthday of the God Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of the gospel. Sounds very religious. Caesar Augustus, God incarnate, Lord and savior of the whole world. That's what they believed. And if you lived in the Roman Empire, or if you lived in a, a region that had been conquered by the Roman Empire, you had one requirement if you wanted to keep your head on its neck. You had to have faith. You had to have faith in Caesar. Now, in our world, the word faith is largely a religious word, but back then it was also a political word. It had political implications. Faith was about loyalty. It was about trust. It was about which community got your allegiance. And if you lived in that world, your sweatshirt had to have an R on it for Roman Empire. And so at some point into this little corner of the Roman Empire, Roman Empire territory, a small town Jewish baby was born and his name was Jesus. And he grows up in this world where you have to pledge your allegiance, your loyalty to Caesar. And his first recorded words, the first recorded words that we have in the Gospels of Jesus's are deeply subversive. When you think about what he's really saying, he says, the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and have faith in the good news. Have faith in the gospel. Now, in our, in our modern day and in our English translations, we kind of miss the boldness of this statement. Because the word that Jesus used for kingdom of God, kingdom, it was the same word that they used for empire. There's a new empire in town. Essentially, he says, and he's living in the Roman Empire at the time, he says that there is a new empire to put your faith in. And this one is not Roman, and it doesn't come from Caesar. Everyone was to be loyal. Everyone back then had to be loyal to the Roman Empire. You had to be. But Jesus comes in, and he invites people to pledge their allegiance to him and to the kingdom of God instead. Those are fighting words. Now, in our world, the phrase kingdom of God is usually associated with heaven, and we often are taught or think about heaven as that place you go when you die. And lots of Christians act like that's what Jesus was talking about, to get us ready for death so that we could escape this world and get to somewhere better. But Jesus did not talk about the kingdom of God like that. For him, the kingdom of God was something that was happening right here. It wasn't just something that we get to later on. It's something that's happening right now, right in the middle of all of the other empires that we could live in. It's God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus's empire was and is about bringing God's way to earth. But he doesn't just do it with his words. He does it with his actions too. All throughout his life, 
Jesus seems to beeline towards all of the people that the Roman Empire had rejected or shamed or degraded. All the people that, that they hated, the widows, the orphans, the day laborers. He calls out the injustices. He challenges the status quo. He pushes back on the policies and powers that, that crush the oppressed. Jesus blesses the people that everyone else has abandoned, and he challenges the people that everyone else has idolized. So when Jesus says, the kingdom, of, the empire of God is here, the kingdom of God is here, repent, turn around, pledge your allegiance, put your faith in this gospel, he is calling the people into a new kind of citizenship, a new kind of allegiance, one that is far superior to any of the other communities that they could be a part of. Well, in that world to all the people who had been oppressed by the Roman Empire or who were enslaved to its system, that was good news. So Jesus develops a little following in his corner of the world, a following of people who believe that Jesus, not Caesar, is Lord and Savior of the world, and that Jesus' empire, Jesus' kingdom, is the one that will ultimately win the day. And that the true way is to follow his way, to pledge your allegiance to him above any other empire that you could pledge your allegiance to. And his following grows. And the good news spreads. But here's the thing. You can't do that back then. You can't put your faith in a different empire than Caesar's. And so the Romans kill Jesus. And as they nail Jesus to the cross, they put up a sign. And on this sign is a bunch of different languages that say the same thing because they don't want anyone to miss the mockery. King of the Jews. Nice try, Jesus, but there's, there's one empire that people can pledge their allegiance to, and it's the Roman one. But Jesus had one more act of protest to do. It was to defeat being defeated by the powers of this world, by conquering death itself. When he walked out of the grave, Jesus conquered death, and he conquered everything that would put him and everything else in our world in the tomb altogether. He conquered sin, he conquered shame, corrupt governments, all the empires that stand in opposition to the way that God intended the world to be. Jesus defeated death, and from that moment on, the battle against death we waged in all of our broken systems that bring about all kinds of death and all of our allegiances that we put on par with or make equal to Christ. When Jesus died, the Roman cross served as the symbol of the greatest kind of the, king, the kingdom of the world's power, the Roman power. But when Jesus rose, the empty tomb became the symbol of the kingdom of God's power. Not even Caesar could raise from the dead. This is so significant. Except that leaves Jesus' followers with a problem. Because every time the early Christians said Caesar is Lord, or Jesus is Lord, they're also saying Caesar is not Lord. So when we take a look at this story in the book of Acts, chapter 16, there's this kind of this deep tension happening. Which community are you going to pledge your allegiance to? Where will you get your ultimate allegiance? Because how you answer that question back then, it could literally lead to life or death consequences. So take a look at Acts chapter 16. We find two followers of Jesus, their names are Paul and Silas, and, and they're in a town called Thessalonica, and they're preaching the good news of Jesus, and they're encouraging everybody to, to pledge their loyalty to Jesus. They're traveling all over the region, they're preaching the good news, and they start getting heckled by this slave girl who has an evil spirit. The spirit's prompting her to, to follow them, to shout after them, to cause all kinds of unwanted attention. And her evil spirit did more than just heckle these guys. She, this is an example of human trafficking. And her traffickers were using her for divination. She made all kinds of money for them. She was telling people's fortunes through evil means. She was herself 
a victim of exploitation in the Roman Empire, but she's working for it. And Paul, Paul will not have it. She's following him around, she's shouting after him, and in our English translations it says that Paul was greatly troubled by this, but in the original Greek, which I studied, it said that Paul got wicked annoyed with a poop emoji. <laughs> it doesn't say why Paul got so annoyed, but he was really annoyed. It could be that he just didn't like this girl following him around. It could be that she was getting them all kinds of the wrong kind of attention. But I like to imagine that Paul just looks at her and he sees her and he gets annoyed at a broken system where a girl like this could be used and abused by human traffickers. And he decides that he's going to put a stop to it altogether. Not just the heckling, but the whole means of exploitation itself. So he turns around and he commands this evil spirit out of her. He commands it in the name of his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's a Christ follower, right? So instead of reprimanding her or abusing her or doing some other thing that the Roman Empire would probably encourage you to do when you're in this kind of encounter, Paul heals the girl because that's what the gospel of Jesus does. It confronts all the kinds of evil in the world, sin and shame and all the kinds of darkness that had been inhabiting this girl and at the same time as saving her as an individual, it also calls out and confronts the economic system that would allow traffickers to exploit a child for their gain. Well, naturally, the girls' traffickers don't like this. They've just lost their investment. So they seize Paul and Silas, and they force them to face the authorities. What are the charges? It says, they're throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans. For us Romans. For we dignified, card-carrying members of the Roman Empire. These guys aren't acting like us. So, Paul and Silas are stripped, they're beaten, they're thrown into prison. And it's interesting to remember, too, that Paul and Silas were also Roman citizens. They could have mentioned that. They could have appealed to their citizenship. You're not allowed to treat a Roman citizen that way. But Paul and Silas don't. Don't mention it, not at first. They want to stand by their actions. They want to continue to, to stand in the name of Christ. They want his way to become their way. They don't argue. They don't shout back. They don't claim their rights as Roman. They have pledged their allegiance first and foremost to a different kingdom. And sometimes that kingdom has to challenge the ways of the Roman one, even when it has its consequences. So the jailer puts them in the innermost prison where there is no chance of escape, and just for safe measure, he also puts their feet in stocks. So what do they do? They do what any of us would do if we find ourselves in that situation. They start to pray and sing hymns. That's what you guys would do, right? No, I would not do that. I would pray. I don't know if I, if I would be as positive. <laughs> like, I would pray. But they're not worried. They're not afraid. They see this as an opportunity to, to just share the gospel in jail. Well, around midnight, there's this earthquake, and it breaks down the jail. It's so violent, all the doors of the jail fly open, and everyone's shackles come off. So normally that means all the prisoners would escape, right? But the prisoners don't escape. They stay. Why? Because they don't want the prison guard to get in trouble with his Roman bosses. And this prison guard looks at them and he sees two men who preach a different kind of empire and who live it with their lives in dangerous, radical, subversive ways, ways that leave no part of their society untouched. He sees these two men whose allegiance to Christ is changing the world. And there's something different about them. And he can't shake it. 
He wants to be a part of it. So he asks them, what can I do? What can I do to be saved? In other words, he's asking, how do I get in on whatever it is that you have? How do I pledge my allegiance to this kingdom? And they reply, just as subversively, put your faith in the Lord Jesus. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Pledge your allegiance to this other kingdom and to the other king, to the good news that is turning the old order of things on its head. So the jailer does. He, he gives his faith and his loyalty, his allegiance to Jesus. And then there's this beautiful detail in the story that I often miss when I'm reading it. It says, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. His first instinct upon trusting in Jesus and joining his citizenship to Christ's kingdom his first instinct is an act of humanity. It's an act of kindness. Before, he would have just thrown them in the, in the prison cell without regard for their lives. But he's a, a citizen of a different kind of kingdom now. And his first instinct is to be a healer. We have here a remarkable instinct of what happens when you join Jesus' gospel and Jesus' kingdom, when we pledge our allegiance to Christ. It produces humanity and tenderness and love. But then something else happens. Paul and Silas, they wash the jailer's wounds too. Not the physical ones, different kind of wounds. The wounds that come about when you live in a kind of empire like the Roman one. The wounds of their culture, fear, sin, shame, violence. They baptize him along with his entire household. These two washings are put side by side in the book of Acts. And they're striking juxtaposition, the waters of baptism. They washed the, the jailer's deeper stains. Deeper stains from any wounds that Paul and Silas could have suffered from that night. And Acts says that the prison guard was filled with joy because he had come to know Christ and had put his faith in Christ. So what about you? When you think about your life, what other empires are you tempted to pledge your allegiance to? What citizenship might you be tempted to keep as a backup plan just in case this God thing doesn't work out? Now, I'd imagine that most of us in this room believe in God, or at least we're open to the idea. Most of us believe that God is pretty great and worthy of our worship. That is why we're here. But for so many of us, our struggle is sticking as a citizen of one empire. For so many of us, the issue is the God option. God and. God and money. God and fitness. God and alcohol. God and grades. God and guns, God and recreation, God and recognition in my field, God and approval of my superiors or my parents, God and my life plan, God and this one relationship, God and being right, God and country, God and freedom, God and family, God and Peloton. Now the thing is that most of these other priorities, they're not bad things. They're a lot of them are really good things. Idolatry is rarely about falling in love with bad things. There's a pastor in New York named Tim Keller who wrote that an idol is anything good that becomes ultimate. Anything good that becomes ultimate. When we take good things and we make them ultimate things, when we let them dictate how we live, when we make God a, a good option unless something else comes up. Most of these things, they're good things. Fitness, family, freedom, all of these are good. And when they are subservient to Christ and our allegiance to him, they can even be a part of our worship. But so much of the time, so much of the time, we make these things equal to, or if we're honest, sometimes in the back of our hearts and minds, 
even more important than our relationship with Christ. When Christ doesn't seem to be working out, we'll cling to this other thing. They become our ultimate hope, our salvation, the thing that we're really putting our faith in. It is so much easier to pledge our allegiance to things that we can see, that fulfill promises sometimes. But here's the danger. When something that we love gets threatened and it, it's an ultimate thing, this other thing that we've put our faith in, that thing that we've tied our identity or our primary citizenship to, when it gets threatened, we fall apart. And we are willing to, to do anything to protect and preserve and honor that thing, even, even if our citizenship with that thing comes in conflict with our citizenship in heaven. But no matter how good our other gods are, God is the only one. God is the only one who will never disappoint us and who can bear the weight of our worship. There's a theologian named Thomas Oden who put it this way. He said, suppose my God is sex or my physical health or the Democratic Party. If I experience any of these under genuine threat, then I feel myself shaken to the depths. Guilt becomes intensified to the degree that I have idolized finite values. Suppose I value my ability to teach or communicate clearly. If clear communication has become an absolute value for me, a center of value that makes all my other values valuable, then if I fail in teaching well, I'm stricken with guilt. Bitterness becomes intensified when someone or something stands between me and something that is my ultimate value. The truth is that anything that we can put our faith in that isn't Christ will ultimately disappoint us in the end. Eventually, we'll discover this disappointment when we finally get into that relationship and we realize that it doesn't make the loneliness go away. Or when we give in to our addictions and we realize that it doesn't make the stress go away. Or when we finally get all that success that we worked for and we realize that it doesn't make the fear go away. When we put our hope in our families and our kids and it just doesn't manifest itself the way that we intended it or imagined that it would, when our relationship with them doesn't look like we thought it would be, when we finally prove our point, and we feel just as disconnected as before. So what if, what if we were never intended? What if we are not made to pledge our primary allegiance to a country or a family or a relationship at all? What if God intends for us to pledge allegiance to Christ and Christ alone above all of those other things? Last weekend, two High Rockers got married, Will and Abby. Some of us were there. They're on their honeymoon now. One of the things that I love about my job is officiating weddings because I get to see these, this moment up close where people are pledging their lives to each other. It is a beautiful, beautiful moment. And Will and Abby had just this, such a beautiful ceremony. And they looked each other in the eyes and before all of their friends and family, they publicly declared to choose each other and only each other. Not each other and someone else, maybe sometime. Not each other whenever it feels good. They were vowing to be together through their whole lives. They are committed to each other and only to each other. Until death do they part. Now there are moments in any marriage when keeping that vow feels hard. Moments of struggle, when things aren't looking like you thought they would, when you're not communicating well, or when your spouse does something that hurts. But at the core of the wedding vow, is a promise to be together, to love each other fully with absolute loyalty, even when it costs us something. And in that relationship, we get this beautiful picture of what the love of Christ looks like in our lives. 
writer C.S. Lewis said it like this. He said, Christ said, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. Hand over the natural self, all the desires which you think innocent, as well as the ones that you think wicked, the whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. God, God has bowed God's whole self to us and has invited us to bow our whole selves back in return in undivided loyalty. There's nothing more important than orienting our entire lives and all of our allegiances around Christ. And so this morning, what would it look like for you to start to put these things into practice? What would it look like for you to take all of your other citizenships, all of your other allegiances, and make them subservient to your allegiance to Christ's kingdom? Rather than loving God and, what would it look like for you to, to love God as? To love God as you work, as you serve, as you play, as you study, as you manage your time and your energy and your relationships. Loving God as, as you respond to the people that you love and as you respond to the people that you don't. This morning, in your context, what does it look like for you to start reorienting all of your allegiances towards God? And when we look at our lives, we step back and we really take a long view at our lives. We have a panoply of opportunities, things to invest our lives in. World issues, relationships, family obligations, whether or not to get that night degree, to sign our kid up for baseball, to stay in that reading group that we've been in for years. The question here isn't about how to spend our time or our money or our resources or energy. Beneath the surface, it's an invitation to put everything in our lives as part of our worship. It's about aligning all of our lives' choices with the one that we actually worship. It's about making all of our choices with Christ in view. And we need to allow God to ruthlessly cut anything out in our lives that isn't subservient to Christ. That means that how we schedule our time or our kids' time needs to reflect a priority for them to know Christ above all else. That means that how we speak to and about our partner or our primary relationships, how we serve them day to day, needs to reflect our desire to follow Christ. That means that how we eat and rest and exercise and entertain ourselves, how we choose our light bulbs and vote in elections, it all needs to reflect a desire to worship Christ with all that we can bring now, we'll close with a story that I've shared before, but I used to be a youth pastor, and I worked with a group of very wealthy and very privileged teenagers who had all kinds of things competing for their time and attention. They went to some of the top prep schools in the country. They were involved in all kinds of sports and after-school clubs and student government, all to make sure that they would have the best shot at getting into the best colleges to get them to, it, it just made, it made it impossible <laughs> for them to actually want to be involved in youth group. They had so many things going on that we're, we're trying to like squish them into, uh, squish our youth group into their calendars. But as their youth pastor, I wanted more for them than just to get into a good college. I wanted them to follow Christ with their whole lives. So we, we tried to brainstorm all kinds of things, and at one point I suggested that maybe we invite the kids to do more at church. Maybe instead of trying to get the kids to fit us into their schedule or fit faith into their schedules, maybe we should try something a little bit more drastic. I suggested that we start a student leadership program. We can invite the kids to spend more time nurturing their faith and spending time in the faith community. Well, of course, we got pushback from the parents. 
These kids are too busy for that. They're stretched too thin for that. They can't add something else into their lives, like a higher commitment to church. They have college to think about. They have to invest in the things that are going to matter in setting up their future success. But our goal as youth pastors was never that they would just add in more things. It was that these kids would finally learn to subtract. What if instead of all of the other after-school clubs and sports and everything else they committed to, what if they said no to some of those good things so they could say yes to what mattered most? Because when we think about the lives of those kids, when you think about the lives of your kids, if you have kids, is getting them into a good college really their reason for existence? What if their lives were, were ordered by something else entirely to serve the kingdom of God? Well, I was told that there would be no interest, that no kids would want to participate in this or apply, but 30 students did. They said no to some of their other activities. They said no to good opportunities so that they could say yes to learning how to better follow Christ in their lives. They started to serve in the church. They served in children's ministry. They led small groups. They gave their own money from after-school jobs to further the work of the kingdom of God. They focused more on building up the church and learning what it looked like to follow Christ in their everyday lives than in investing in their college applications. And here's the thing. They all got into college. They're all living meaningful lives today. They're engaged in meaningful relationships. And even more importantly, when I catch up with those kids, who made that choice, more than any of the other kids in that youth group, those are the kids who are still following Christ. Because they chose to align their lives with their reason for being from a very young age. And they are to this day. And they did it together. They made this choice together as a group to live according to the kingdom of God. It wasn't some big, grand thing. It was the small, daily, weekly choices that they made to invest in the things that mattered. My favorite writer, Annie Dillard, wrote, How we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. What we do with this hour and that one is what we are doing. So this week, I want to invite you to spend some time with God and with your community to think about how you are investing your days and how you're investing your life. Ask that question. Does the way that you're living and the choices that you're making, do they point toward your primary allegiance? toward your primary loyalty as a citizen of God's kingdom? Does the way that you live match what you say that you value? And if not, what would it look like for God to align and order your days in a way that aligns with who God is? What other empires are you tempted to fall back on? So I'm going to give you a minute to be quiet and explore that question, and then I'll, open, I'll close us with a word of prayer. Lord and Savior of the world, Jesus, we align ourselves, we pledge our loyalty and our faith to you above all the other empires of the world. We pray that you would teach us what it looks like to be a citizen of your kingdom above everything else, to order and align our days according to what you teach and according to your spirit alive in us. We pray this week that you would help us to observe ourselves, that by your spirit you would show us 
where our lives are not aligned, what other empires in the back of our hearts and minds we are tempted to put our faith in. Would you give us the courage to name those things to you, to ourselves, to one another, and to start to make different daily choices that ground us in who you are. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.